Welcome to the weekly podcast of Calvary Chapel, South London, a church where the truth of God's word meets and transforms the reality of our daily lives. We hope you are impacted by this week's teaching. Uh, thanks, Rob, for the introduction. Hello, Ecclesia. And um, Rob gave me some of your um, previous sermon titles to look at before I came. So I don't know if you remember this. I think it was back in June. Um, can I say good afternoon, all you good-looking Christian men <laughs> and all you drop-down gorgeous Christian women? <laughs> So my title, I think you know my title already, it doesn't sound as sexy as that, but um, it's, um, it's a really exciting title, it's just partnership, okay? So I hope the idea of partnership excites you. Um, those of you who are married are in partnership. Um, you are married, hopefully... Because you believe that in marriage you can together serve the Lord better than either of you could simply as individuals on your own. Um, those of you who are members of this church are in partnership with each other, bringing together your different gifts, different resources, different experiences, different backgrounds, so that together you can serve the Lord. So partnership is, is a wonderful thing. I've got a slide, pictures of partnership, um, uh, which are fairly obvious, but the idea is we're stronger together. We can do more together. So you have lots of different partnerships, but this is one of them, London City Mission and Ecclesia, and the idea is going to be a win-win for both of us. And that together, twisted around each other, we're stronger than we would be on our own. There's another image I didn't put on there, which would have been wonderful to have done. Um, but um, you, some of you will be familiar with the tallest trees in the world, uh, Californian redwoods. Normally, when you've got a really tall tree, you've got a really, really deep root. And it's the same with our buildings. The higher you go, the deeper down you've got to go. But they don't have that. They've got really shallow roots. So how do they stand up so tall? It's because all their roots are intertwined with one another. They couldn't stand on their own, but as a forest, they stand really, really tall. So I've got another slide of partnership because I'm aware that partnership can be a bit scary. <laughs> that, is, that is actually reality. Um, that, uh, the bird is uh, the Egyptian plover. And the partnership is uh, the plover gets its food from the crocodile's teeth. And the crocodile gets his teeth cleaned <laughs> by the Egyptian plover. <laughs> it's not a partnership I would like to be in. <laughs> um, but anyway, this morning, uh, this morning I'm talking about partnership, and the obvious place to go for that is uh, Philippians. So if you've got Bibles, um, our main passage is going to be Philippians chapter 2. Um, but I'm starting off with this verse, because um, 
uh, it just highlights that Paul had a very special partnership with the church in Philippi. I thank my God every time I remember you in all my prayers for you, all of you. I always pray with joy because of the partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And uh, here, is, here is a partnership between Paul, leader of a little mission team or a little missionary society, if you like, and a local church uh, that he had in the past planted. And I say it's unique because um, they were, as far as we know, the only church that not only prayed for Paul after he left, but continued to finance Paul after he left. Normally, he wouldn't accept any money. He didn't want people to think he was in it for the money. But with this church, he did. But if you read the letters to the Philippians, you'll see it's not only uh, a partnership of prayer and money. Um, There are two women. You can read about them in chapter 4 who worked alongside Paul in gospel ministry. Sadly, when this letter is written, they're at um, loggerheads with each other. But they had been partners with him in the gospel. Um, there's another man whom, um, so next slide, I think this, next slide, yeah. Um, Rob and Helen probably saw this in um, India. But what we have here is uh, two, two oxen yoked together. The idea, of course, is if they're all pulling in the same direction, a lot more power than, than either oxen on their own. But he's got a friend in Philippi. He wants to sort out these two women who are loggerheads or help them be reconciled to each other and work together again. And he gives them the nickname Loyal Yoke Fellow. Um, and then you'll also read, if you read the letters of the Philippians, a guy called Epaphrodites, whom they had sent to Paul, who was hundreds of miles away, um, in prison. They'd sent Epaphroditus to Paul uh, to care for him while he was in prison. And Epaphroditus almost lost his life because of that, because prisons weren't the most hygienic places in those days. So, so here, is, here is a very, very special partnership. Um, but despite the special bond they've got between them, um, there are divisive forces at work. Um, I don't know whether it's in their partnership or in their, in their local fellowship. Don't quite know the details. But Paul, Paul talks about um, um, brothers who are not pulling in the same direction. And that happens, of course. You think of the first brothers in the Bible, Cain and Abel. Cain assuming, I think, as firstborn, he really ought to be the favored son in God's eyes, as he undoubtedly was in his mother's eyes, um, and really getting worked up uh, because God didn't favor him over Abel. And then you go on, there's Ishmael and Isaac, there's Esau and Jacob, there is Joseph and his brothers. And in the same way, churches can compete with each other. And pastors and leaders vie with each other for preeminence. So, um, you know, in some ways, actually, you've, you've got a very... You've got a very special example of partnership here, just in Ephraim and Rob um, working 
together so closely and not vying, well, as, as far as I can read it, I do, you know, not vying with each other for one being the su- and a superior leader over the other and the other saying, well, I think I'm going to go off and start my own church so I can be the top man. Um, but that seems to be what was happening in, in, um, in Philippi. So Paul says, chapter 1, verse 15, um, some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry. Um, verse 17, out of selfish ambition, not sincerely. Um, and that, that is, that is um, re- really so often the way. I don't know if you, you probably know of, there are buildings in London, and you probably know of them, where on a, on a Sunday morning, in that building, there will be maybe seven different churches. And uh, they've all got the rushes going out to try and steal each other's sheep. And so on. The church is in competition um, with each other. And pastors vying with other pastors to become the chief pastor um, in that area or for that cultural group um, of people. And that, that's, that's what's going on here. Um, we don't know exactly who, the, who these people were, but Paul is in prison. And um, what he says is his reading of it is they're trying to stir up trouble for him while he's in chains. And my guess is, it's only a guess, but my guess is they're thinking if we get Paul out of the way, there is a vacuum for us to fill and we can step into his shoes. And sadly that happens um, in churches. So a few years ago I heard of... um, the persecuted church in Nepal and a pastor was put in prison by the secret police because he'd been betrayed by one of the leaders of his church who wanted to fill his shoes. So that happens. What's Paul's response to this? Chapter 1 verse 18. Incredible. Oops, losing my notes. What, what does it matter? Um, the important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this I rejoice. Okay? They're, they're trying to make things worse for Paul. He's in prison. Um, he could end up being executed. Um, they're trying to make things more difficult. Paul rejoices. Why does he rejoice? Because Christ is being preach. So here's the the first lesson in partnership, okay? If our partnerships are to work, we must look not to our own interest, but those of Jesus Christ. Very, very simple, isn't it? How can Rob and um, Ephraim work in partnership together, not thinking about themselves, seeking the glory of Jesus Christ in all they're doing? Um, When Jesus began his ministry and he began to become um, popular, successful, John the Baptist, people went to John the Baptist and said, look, he's baptizing more people than you are. Even though it wasn't Jesus, it was his disciples. Uh, John the Baptist says, he must increase, I must decrease. Okay, there is a verse, uh, every pastor, every leader ought to learn off by heart. He must increase, I must decrease. And yet that is not the reality very often down on the ground. How many, how many men here 
grew up with brothers who were close in age to you? Put, put your hand up if that's true. Okay. Um, keep your hands up. Um, but put them, keep them up if you never fought with each other. <laughs> okay. I mean, it does seem to be a sort of instinct amongst brothers then. So how do, how do brothers work together in partnership and not in competition? And I think it's, re- it's really very simple but very hard. It's when they've got a joint goal that is bigger than either of them. So they may play in the same team or maybe in the same music group or maybe work together in uh, a family partnership where they're equal partners. But they're striving for something bigger than either of them. So uh, next slide, thank you. Um, And Paul says to those who are his closest partners, but against an atmosphere where divisive forces are at work, trying to make things worse for Paul, and there's going to be repercussions for them if they're close to Paul. Whatever happens, uh, whether I come and see you, I only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one man for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. Okay, that's only going to work. It's only going to happen, Paul says, is if, there's, if the, the faith of the gospel is more important to them than actually their own safety and security. Which is why, next slide, he says, it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe on him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Okay, later, uh, one more slide and then we'll get to our passage he, he talks about Timothy, but I just want to... Paul has got many, many helpers, many team members, but I have no one else like him who will show a genuine concern for your welfare, for everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Uh, he's talking at a time of extreme tension for the church, where he is in prison... And if he is executed, what could happen to them? And people are panicking. And I've no one else like Timothy who's concerned for your welfare and looks not to his own interests but those of Jesus Christ. Okay, so that, that's the key for a genuine partnership. We're not looking at our own interests. We're looking at those of Jesus Christ. And secondly... Um, we must not look only to our own interests, but those of others. And that, that brings us to our main passage uh, for today. Philippians chapter 2. And I'm going to look at um, the first um, 11 verses. Um, and I'm using the old NIV. So I don't know. What, what does everyone use here, Rob? ESV. I don't think it's going to be very different. New King James. Okay, I don't think it's very, very different. But here, here is how it starts off. Um, and it's, it's really reminding us that this, this ought to be easy. Okay, If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, 
if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Okay, so you hear what he's saying? We are united in Christ. And that is a very special unity that the, the New Testament loves to celebrate. You know, so Galatians 3 verse 28, here there is no Jew nor Greek, no slave nor free, no male nor female. You've got these major divisions in Roman society, but you come into the church and they are not there. We are one in Christ. Colossians 3 verse 11, here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. And this is part of the church's witness to the wider society. Jesus Christ brings real unity. We share, he says, the same love, um, the same spirit, and we also share, he's already referred to, the same sufferings, the fellowship of sharing in the sufferings of Christ, and therefore we ought to share in, um, the sa- in tenderness and compassion for each other. So somebody was telling me yesterday, just uh, describing a scene from television, Syria, um, uh, a man holding his baby who had been frozen to death in the snow there. Any parent can sympathize with that man. You do not know him, different race, different culture, everything, different religion, but you can, you've, got, you've got tenderness and compassion for him. So here is this body of people united in Christ and they and Paul sharing in the same sufferings for Christ. So there ought to be natural tenderness and compassion. Um, So we got all this in common, but at the same time, they're very different. Different backgrounds, heritages, different race, different cultures, different social strata in society, slave and free, master and slave. Um, Also, very different in the way we're wired up. Different personalities and temperaments. Have you ever worked with somebody and you said, "I, I just do not understand how he thinks. Okay, so how then can we, verse 2, make Paul's joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and in purpose? Um, And the answer is in in the verse that, um, that follows that. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. So back to those two words again that caused the division, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not to your 
only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then he says, here's where we really want to go. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Or in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Um, He's presenting Jesus to us as a supreme example to follow. So your different backgrounds, different everything, different way you think, but in your mindset for this, follow Jesus. Make Jesus your supreme example. Now, perhaps you're not surprised I say that. I mean, we're a Christian church after all. Who else would we hold up um, to be our hero? Um, Except um, here, Paul is writing to Philippi, which was an army town, Roman colony, um, which was um, populated by ex-veteran soldiers who'd fought for Caesar didn't want them wandering around Rome with their swords and um, their aggressive temperaments, um, put them out elsewhere. But uh, very loyal to Rome. And the favorite son of Philippi was Alexander the Great, who at the age of 20 succeeded his father Philip, um, whom Philippi is named after. Um, So he became Lord of Macedonia. Very quickly, um, he united the whole of Greece and then set out to conquer most of the world. And he did so at astonishing speed. So at the age of 33, when he died, he was acclaimed as a god which is something he himself had suggested was what he was. Um, The equivalent in Paul's day was Caesar Augustus, who had uh, united Rome after um, various civil wars and had extended, in his words, peace across the known world. A different sort of peace to what we're used to. It's peace under the brutality of Rome. But still it was peace. No wars and conflict. And he was uh, acclaimed to be a god. And his son, the present Caesar, therefore as son of God, Lord of all, Prince of Peace. And in contrast to that, Paul is holding up Jesus, the hero who is, who is more an anti-hero. For by the age of 33, instead of conquering most of the known world, he was nailed to a cross of wood in weakness and in shame. Now put yourself in their shoes, a beleaguered people. Um, They're in a Roman colony and Paul is on trial for his life in Rome. Who is going to, who are they to look to at this time of extreme tension and danger? Beleaguered people want a great leader. They want an Alexander the Great. Um... Or I don't know who, who I don't know who it'd be in your culture. I was thinking I grew up with the Clint Eastwood films. <laughs> you know the sort of guy. Um, 
dispirited people look for a leader who can enable them to believe in themselves, to become winners. And Jesus' CV says he is a loser. And yet, intriguingly, he's holding up Jesus as an example of humble service. And today, in many segments of society, that is regarded as a key qualification for leadership. Okay, we still go for the pride. We still like the football manager who says, I'm the special one. Things like that. But if we've got a leader over us, that's what we like to see in them. So that is, that is the influence of this hero, this example, through the church on society. Except intriguingly, what Paul is presenting to us here is not the example of a really, really humble man. But what he's presenting to us is the humility of God himself. Okay, you get that? Listen to this. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. The sin of Adam and Eve in the garden and the sin we play out every day and the root of all our problems in the world is the desire to be as God. Okay? To have the world revolve around us. To have other people exist for us. To have God himself exist for us. So I pray to him when I need him. And he's supposed to answer me. Um, but in contrast to Adam, who tried to grasp equality with God, Christ voluntarily renounced a status to which he had every right and made himself nothing, is what it says. He made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. Um, and Paul then, that, that, I mean, Paul is basically there giving us a Christmas story. Um, verse 7. Um, being made, being uh, made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Um, becoming a nobody. Um, that's really a big deal, isn't it? Um, one thing we cannot stand is somebody thinking of us as a nobody. You know, if Rob or Ephraim ever said to any of you, or are about any of you, you heard them talking, and they said, oh, don't bother about him, he's a nobody. You, you would never come here again, would you? <laughs> you know, it's why we seek recognition. It's why we fight to protect our image, our dignity, our self-esteem. It's why we're afraid to risk humility. So you think of the disciples in the upper room, um, the day of the Last Supper, hot country, 
Um, they've arrived with dirty, smelly feet. But they're just borrowing a room. There's no host there. Nobody to um, provide a servant to wash their feet as they enter. And um, none of them dare take on that role. Not least because they they don't know why Jesus is there. They think Jesus is there to take control of Jerusalem. They think all the best positions in his cabinet are about to be dished out. And they're competing with each other. Tells us that. They were discussing among themselves which of them was the greatest. And for any of them to have taken the bowl and the towel would have been to have said, I don't really deserve to be here. I'm just lucky to be at the same table with you. I'm not in running for anything. And none of them dared do that. Now we know that in life, don't you? Think of, think of any group you want to be part of where recognition, acceptance is important to you. That's where we find it's played out on a regular basis. Or think of when you were at school. It's not too long ago. Uh, if your school was anything like mine, you've got the in crowd. They're cool, they're hip. They say all the right things, wear all the right clothes, listen to all the right music. And then there's another group who are just the total opposite of them. The losers who just gather together for mutual support. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. If, if you're with the first group, if you're seen with them every day, if they put their arm around you, if they recognize you, you're somebody. If you're with the other group, you hang out with them, you're a nobody. Um, he who was somebody with a capital S made himself a nobody for us. And as I said, Paul highlights that in the Christmas story, verse 7. I said that earlier because I got my notes muddled up, but here it is. <laughs> made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. So I grasp that, okay. You're made in human likeness. What does that mean you are? You are a servant. It's what we're made for. Then you have the Easter story, verse 8, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Um... If we're made as men, what, men and women, what are we made for? To obey our Father in heaven. So Jesus made himself a nobody in the eyes of, you know, the glory he'd been, became a man, became a servant, was obedient even to death on a cross. So in contrast to Adam and Alexander the Great and Augustus Caesar who grasped Equality with God. Jesus grasped the wood of a Roman gallows. Now, of course, he did this to save us. We know that. This isn't self-negation, self-denial for the sake of it. Um, He suffered the death reserved for rebel slaves to save those who were made to be the servants of God but instead rebelled. So we know that, and I'm not denying that. 
But what Paul is holding out to us here is not Jesus our Saviour, but Jesus our example. Look not to your own interest, not only to your own interests, but those of others. Okay? Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. So how do you feel about that? Um, maybe it's easier here. I hope it's easier here. I'm probably saying wouldn't w- it wouldn't work where I work. I'd just become a doormat. People would walk all over me. The only people they take any notice of is those who push themselves forward. Get in the limelight. So look very carefully at what follows. Chapter 2, verse 9. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place. I want you to notice who's exalted Jesus. God, okay? Um, And that's very important because humility was not seen as a, a virtue at all in those days. It was a vice. It was a character flaw. The heroes of the day were without, without question men of aggression. Soldiers, athletes, orators, statesmen. But those who won praise from men by defeating and humiliating their opponents. A slave could never be admired. A slave was a cringing, sniveling nobody. And to suggest the path to glory lay through adopting the attitude of a servant, of a slave, was as crazy as saying, let's dig a tunnel to the moon. Just didn't make any sense at all. And when it comes down to it, it's not really that, that different today, is it? We admire humility in a great one. You know, if there's somebody we really look up to and admire, and they will stop and talk with us, and sit with us, and spend time with us when they could have just walked on, we admire that. But we don't admire humility in somebody who is at the bottom of the ladder, do we? We don't say, oh, we've got a really humble street cleaner, or anything like that. Um... Those who are at the bottom of the pile, if they want to get rid of their sense of inferiority, they've got to do it by self-assertion, haven't we? So in, in you know, social work circles, they talk about empowering people. But you've just got to think back to you know, um, black power movement of the, ni- of the 1960s. Um, the, the, the militant feminists of the 70s, the gay pride marches of the 80s and 90s, uh, the way fundamentalist Muslims assert themselves today. Um, so um, in the days of apartheid, many, many of the oppressed who had um, a background of Christian heritage were persuaded to become Muslims because to take up the sword to follow Muhammad seemed to give them far more dignity than to take up the cross and follow Christ. And I, I, think, I suspect that's being played out on our streets today. 
you know so you think of the the two the two guys the two michaels who murdered um the soldier in woolwich just down the road from where i live they i mean the the word their name michael tells you that doesn't it they both come from christian heritage um but where they were, who wants to be subservient? Who wants to be a loser? Who wants to be a doormat? <coughs> so this is why these verses, verses 9 11, are so important. The man who was nailed to the cross was the biggest loser of all. He'd not only lost his life, he'd lost his reputation. He was now publicly exhibited as the lowest of the low, the scum of the earth. Um, nobody could admire him. I guess the nearest equivalent today would be a popular headmaster who is convicted of molesting children. Um, he can never regain his reputation again. A man on a cross could not sink any lower. Which makes this the most dramatic vindication of humble, faithful obedience ever. So I want you to notice, uh, look at the words carefully. The first word, therefore. Okay? It's not in spite of. Therefore. Because he humbled himself. Because he made himself nobody. Because being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, took the form of a servant. Because he was obedient to death, even to the most shameful death imaginable, God has exalted him to the highest place and given him the name that is above every name. The pa- so, the path of humble service leads to glory. God exalts. Okay? And on this basis, the apostles can say, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that in due time he may exalt you. This, this is the path to glory. Okay? But it's, it's not just affirming this is the path to glory. Um, it's not simply telling us that God exalts the humble. Um, what name? Look at what is given to Jesus. God exalted him to highest place and gave him the name. Okay? That is above every name. It's not a title now. This is not a reward for uh, a job well done. I've, we've been watching you and you've served faithfully over for 20 years. We're going to promote you to this position, give you a new title. It's not a title, it's a name. And what is the name? The name is... Lord, I gave him the name that's above every name, the the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, I know that can be a title, and sometimes in the New Testament it's used in that way. Perhaps some of the people who come to Jesus in the Gospels are just using it like, sir, term of respect. But um, when... They translated the Old Testament into Greek. They took the personal name of God, Yahweh or Jehovah, and they translated it Lord. And that's what 
Paul is talking about here is giving him the name Lord. And how do I know that? Because Paul is quoting Isaiah 45. So next slide, save you looking it up. Um, Here we are. Here is Isaiah 45. Um, Let me read a little bit of it. I am the Lord, there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. Um, I want people to know from uh, the rising of the sun to the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, there is no other. Next slide. Um, I am the Lord, there is no other. And there is no God beside me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none beside me. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn uh, a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow and every tongue swear allegiance. That's what Paul is quoting here. What's, what, Isaiah 45 says over and over again that the God of Israel, who is known as Lord, will not yield his glory to another. And yet that is a name given to Jesus, a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should, every tongue confess and every, every knee shall bow. So understand Paul is not telling here this, a sort of super-duper version of the Cinderella story. It's not a dramatic reward for a job well done. Um, this is God's declaration that the one who humbled himself and was obedient to death, even death on the cross, was none other than God. Okay, so um, verse 6, I understand. I'm not an expert in Greek, um, but I read somebody who is. And he said, verse 6 could be translated because he was in very nature God. He humbled himself. Okay. This is not the story of someone who is in spite of the fact that he is in God, but because of the fact that he is God. It's not so much a story of God the Son denying himself as God the Son being true to himself. This is the way God acts. This is the way God loves. Unlike the gods um, that they'd heard about in their past, the gods of Greece and Rome, who were sort of just bigged up version of proud and arrogant men. Um, Here is a God who is a humble God. And he is the only God. He is the center of the universe, whom every knee will bow, every tongue confess. But he is humble enough to take the role of a slave because that is the sort of God he is. A God who serves. If you think about it, that's why you can have one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in perfect communion. Because they give themselves to each other and they serve each other. So while we try to grasp equality with God, he grasped the wood of a Roman gallows. This is the God who made us for servanthood. This is the God who came down to rescue us and bring us back to himself in order that we might begin again to imitate him and be renewed in his image. So how then can we not follow 
the path of humble service, seeking not our own interests, but those, also those of others. It looks like the world belongs to the winners, but that is not the case. The world belongs to Jesus Christ and to all who believe in him and are bound to him and to whom he says, take up your cross and follow me. So this is the only way we can conduct ourselves in a way that's worthy of the gospel. And it is the only way we will be in partnership with each other. So just, just before we finish, one, one last thing for you to think about. How can we grow in humility? Um, have you heard of the church that had um, every year had an annual awards ceremony? And uh, to one man, they awarded a badge. Most humble member of the church. <laughs> but next week, next Sunday, when he was still wearing it, they took it away from him. <laughs> it's, it's the virtue you cannot be proud of. And it's a virtue you cannot achieve by saying, my New Year's resolution is to set out to be more and more humble. Okay, you know the sort of person who, does, who tries to do that. Cringing, sniveling somebody who just wants other people to recognize him. So how, how do we get humility? Okay, very simply. It comes from looking to Christ. Having a new hero. Who do you admire? Who do you fix your gaze on? The stars of music, entertainment, sport? The winners in your community? Those who boast of themselves and assert themselves? Or the one who was God and humbled himself to become a man and a servant and to be obedient. So it comes from looking to Christ, and it comes from following Christ. We not only believe in him, but we, we are to embrace his story. It's not that he humbled himself and became a servant, was obedient to death, so now we just live a life of glory. The path to glory is the path of the cross. And that's going to be seen in our lives, not so much generally in great heroic acts but a thousand small decisions to seek not greatness for ourselves but to be the servant of others so look to Christ follow Christ and I think that's what I mean I'm not I'm not going to go on to the verses to follow but I think that's what the verses to follow are talking about work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it's God who is at work in you I think it's talking about learn in your life to live out the story. And then the next verse is very obvious. If you do that, you will do everything without grumbling and complaining. Servants don't grumble and complain. So look to Christ. Embrace his story. Make his story your story. But ultimately, it comes from union with Christ. Having his spirit belonging to his family. 
So the example of Christ is not enough. I look at the example of Christ and all I see is failure, 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 failure in my own life. But Paul is saying, chapter 2, verse 1, if there's any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from his love, any fellowship with the Spirit, okay, we've got that. We are joined to Christ. He's not just our example, but you know the, the image in John 15, the vine and the branches. We've got his sap flowing through us. We've got his humble love, his humble spirit in us. The transforming power of his love at work in our lives. So may, 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 may the Lord work in us as we seek to uh, work this out together. In your marriages that they may be partnerships for the Lord in, in your church fellowship so that the Jesus' name and Jesus' story are proclaimed not only in word but in deed. People come and they see it lived out. And um, in your partnership with us, the London City Mission and other gospel-minded churches, that there may be, you know, through, through our partnership, there will be many more um, communities who come to be blessed by the Church of Jesus Christ, like with Patrick and Jevon and, and all the others down in, down in East Dulwich. May God work in us. Let me pray. Mm. Gracious Father, we... Um, we come to you as those who have been made by you and you know us intimately and you alone can um, untangle the tangled threads of our lives and the broken threads um, and unite us together, bind us to each other through our union with Jesus Christ and work out in our lives and in our community, the humble spirit of Christ. Please, please do this. Um, fill us with your love. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Fill us with the word of Jesus Christ and help us to follow in his footsteps, seeking his glory and seeking not only our own interest but also the interests of others. We ask in Jesus' name. To find out more about us, visit our website at calvarychapelsouthlondon.org or find us on Facebook and Twitter at CC South London. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.